But thank you for welcoming me here. It was a pleasure to be here. It was a pleasure to have Tamar in classes. Um, the subject we're talking about, the table, and this message about the Lord's table, like as in communion, is one that we spent a bit of time talking about in that course. And I think that's probably why I came into your mind when you were framing in this series. Um, it, was kind of, it was kind of funny. So that course is local church. And we don't really teach, I don't really teach like, here's how we do it at our church, very specifically in that course. There's lots of avenues where they learn how our church does it, you know, because we're training them. But it's, it's more like, um, what does the Bible say? What, what did they do in the New Testament? Because if we just tell them how to do it in our church, by the time these students are planting churches and pastoring churches, number one, it'll be a different church in a different context. And number two, things will change. And I can promise you, our church won't be doing it the way that we taught you to do it when you were here in Bible college. We, we adjust and we shift. And so part of that is I break up the class into different, like, elderships, where all of the students are part of different eldership groups. And they have to talk about all the things that we're bringing up in this local church class. And I always felt funny with Tamar there, because she's here with, like, four or five other, like, 19-year-olds. And they're like, I think we should do blah, blah, blah. And they're usually, sorry if you're 19, but that's my mocking you. <laughs> and they're usually just saying, you know, this basically, this code for this is how we do it at my church. But you're, like, literally in the middle of, like, starting to pastor and taking this church. I mean, you have a time of ministry before then. And I just, they probably got a lot out of your insight. I don't know how much you got out of their insight, but you did. Yeah, I mean, they do. They, they have great ideas. It's a great time. I'm kind of making fun of them, but really it's a, it's a great exercise to sort of think through those issues. I love this house. I've got lots of, any students here who were in that local church class? I don't know. Oh, hey, how's it going? I just ran into you the other day like you were jogging or something. <laughs> jogging everywhere, yeah. <laughs> and my good friends Matt and Ashley are here, and Rick and Teresa. And of course, I, um, I was best friends with Ryan Harder. We met in Bible college and were roommates and, and spent, um, and were roommates after Bible college and best men in each other's weddings. I'm so grateful for this house, for being his family at a time in his life where he really needed a family, if you know his story. So it's a real pleasure to be here today. Um, my wife and kids are here. Um, I love my wife. I love my kids. She's from New Zealand, and uh, I somehow convinced her to stay as she came over here to study at Bible College. I love my kids. We, we, we're a family of Bible nerds and book nerds, and my kids love reading. Like, we're just trying to read to them as much as possible, get them to read. My oldest, Grace, she's eight. She just finished the book of Genesis in a whole day. She was reading it in like, uh, and I was like, wow, that's impressive. She had all sorts of questions we were not prepared to answer. But we're, we're really grateful for kids that love reading because one of our biggest fears was that our kids would grow up and like sports. And so, <laughs> and if you know me, you know why that would be a fear. <laughs> so thank God, well, the boy might have proclivities that way. I don't know. I just try, every time he exhibits athletic ability, I just kind of <laughs> shove him down and push him over. We'll see if that works. Go read a book, kid. Um, well, amen. Well, we're going to, I understand we're in a series, The Table, The Table. And as I was reading the messages and talking with Pastor Peter about The Table, um, the idea is to model our lives after 
Christ and the early church, how radically hospitable. I think that's a phrase I heard you say, and it's a phrase I've heard in other places, radical hospitality, where Jesus got into people's lives. Um, sinners with ultra-religious folks, it didn't matter what, he was going to commune with them, fellowship with them, get into their lives, ask questions. And I think that's, that's really the essence of, if I understand it correctly, of what this series is going to be about in church the next couple weeks here. Um, today, however, we're zooming in on a particular kind of thing, and that is the table of the Lord. And I, and I wanted to start out by drawing some distinctions that I think are important. Number one, I want to talk about the two senses of how we might talk about table. Two senses of table here. Um, and sense number one is that it's the table of radical hospitality. Like all of those accounts I was just mentioning, uh, the Gospel of Luke is particularly good to go to. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, they all have five occasions where Jesus dines with people. Luke has 10. He doubles it. He really is the one to focus in on how this is kind of how Jesus functioned. And you see Jesus being invited over to religious leaders' homes, the Pharisees, and having conversations with them. And he, you see him, more impressively, finding the worst of the sinners in their context, which would be the tax collectors. And they didn't like tax collectors for more reasons than maybe you don't like tax collectors. Um, they didn't like tax collectors. I'm not saying you don't like tax collectors. I said maybe. Um, <laughs> but tax collectors for them was kind of like trading, like being a trader on the Jewish people to uh, collect taxes for the Roman government and usually do some extorting on the side. So like, um, so like Nicodemus, for instance, Jesus says, I'm going to come stay at your house today. And he kind of invites himself over. And Nicodemus is so blown away by Jesus' radical hospitality, his love for him, his acceptance for him, as the worst of the sinners. There were two people that the Jews thought were the worst of the sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. And Jesus had this ability to sort of find himself eating and dining and fellowshipping with both. That's what we would call the table of radical hospitality. And in these meals, Jesus is never interested. You cannot find one occasion where he's interested in conversation for the sake of conversation. He's never he, he is always on mission, and I think we have permission to be on mission. Not, not to cheapen the realness of the fellowship, of the hospitality, but it, it does have a purpose, and he's unapologetic about that. And so he meets with, with Zacchaeus, and the whole point is, your life is going to be changed. And his life was left from that situation changed. When he's invited over to the Pharisee's house for dinner and this irreputable woman comes up and washes his feet and they say, if you knew her past, you would not let her do that. She walks away changed and transformed. Um, in three of these occasions, Jesus rebukes the people like very clearly, calls out their sin, calls out their hypocrisy. They invited him as the guest. He can behave sometimes like that uncle at Thanksgiving who insists on bringing up politics. I mean, Jesus is really like this sometimes. You're like, are you going to, this guy's giving you a meal and you're telling him stories that are clearly targeting him. And then sometimes just outright rebuking him. My point is on either side of the equation, Jesus is never just having a meal. He's bringing people closer to the kingdom of God. 
Whether that, that means revealing their sin so that they can come in humility, and sometimes they do. It doesn't always end with them saying, oh, how dare you? And then like, it usually ends that way with those type of folks. But some of them really did come to Christ and be drawn into him. Or whether it's on the other side with, with the worst of the sinners, even though Jesus was mocked for it, finding that this man loves me and is going somehow to save me. He's always on mission. So in summary, for the first type of meal, over meals, Jesus cares for people and transforms their lives, and he teaches them and even sometimes rebukes them. Now, there's a different sense of table that we need to talk about, the table of covenant. Now, there's something different happening when Jesus now, after he's done ministering to the crowds and to the people, before he goes to the cross, he celebrates the Passover meal with his 12 disciples. And he makes it clear, this is not exactly the same as these other meals. These other meals were me uh, exercising radical hospitality, even sometimes though he's the guest, he's, cert- he's the one showing that kind of love and hospitality. That's what those were about. That's still here. Jesus is still here dining in an in a intimate way with these men. But it's something unique. It's covenant forming. And what we have to know about their worldview is that meals were often involved in the formation of covenants. You can just read this and find this in your Bible. Um, When different people in scripture make a pact or a covenant, a, a sacred oath, they seal it by eating a meal together. And God, when he in the Old Testament made covenants, he sealed it with a meal. So when God said, the people of Israel are not just gonna be a people I relate to, but they're going to be a people that I bring into sacred covenant with me. The difference between someone you're dating and someone you're marrying in a sacred covenant, that's what it would be. The way he begins that is he says, you're going to sacrifice this lamb, you're going to eat it, you're going to have a sacred meal at the formation of not just you being my my people, but you becoming my nation, my special covenant people. A meal begins that. And this is the very meal that Jesus reappropriates when he comes to the table in all of the Gospels. And he picks up the cup and and breaks the bread first and says, this is my body. This is my blood. This is the new covenant I'm making. As if to say, God made this this old sacred pact with his people Israel in the past. And now I'm taking that and I'm renewing it and remaking it into something even grander so that they used to, year after year, celebrate Passover as a means to renew that special covenant God made with them to get them out of slavery to Egypt. And now Jesus is is saying that story was actually always about, really about, what I came to do. I will be the one to free humanity from, from slavery, not to the Egyptians, but even worse, to sin. I will be the lamb that was slain and must be eaten in order to get them out of that slavery and become my sacred people. And I will give them a meal that they constantly do over and over again to renew that covenant. And he was making a new covenant with them. This is just a part of their culture. I remember when I went to go, we went to go buy our minivan. Do you remember that? Um, your parents had helped us out with some of the money to buy that. And so they were visiting and, and they went with us. We found it on Craigslist. And it was this Iranian man 
selling this minivan, and, and we went to go meet him at his apartment complex. And I was just, um, the family and my, my father-in-law and mother-in-law were all in the, their cars, and we just wanted to get out and kind of sign the papers and look at it and make sure it was okay. But the man insisted that we come inside to his apartment. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to take my family into this apartment of this strange man I met on, in Craigslist. I mean, I, I don't know if I want to. But he insisted. And so I was like, okay. And so we go into his house. His wife sees him come in. The kids are running around. And she immediately jumps up, puts things away, tries to clean up, goes off into the kitchen. And we sit down on the couch. And he, we're going to sign the papers there. We're not going to do it on the hood of your car. She comes out with treats and with a large dish of the most wonderful coffee with like cardamom spices in it. And she poured the coffee in these beautiful cups that had like gold filigree around them. And my wife had, she hates coffee, but she had to drink the coffee because <laughs> it would be inhospitable to not drink the coffee. So I loved that. And I think... Uh, the, the, the missionaries can correct me if I'm misinterpreting the culture. I think in his mind, he couldn't fathom making a covenant and an agreement, even if it was just selling a minivan, without hospitality, without some sort of exchange, without some sort of meal. And it's not like that's the way they used to do it. That's the way they do it in the culture that Jesus belongs to, right? Still, to this day, my mother-in-law made the mistake at of um, complimenting the, uh, the, the tea uh, cups from Iran. And so right afterwards, the wife takes them into the kitchen, cleans them off, and as we're leaving, she presents as a gift to her the box. Now, we just did give them a lot of money, but we, this was not necessary. And she's like, I couldn't possibly. But then she realized how improper it would be to deny those, because they're more like the Bible. We make a covenant over a meal, over hospitality, and there's the exchange of gifts in the process, just like Jesus did with us. He makes a covenant over a meal. He institutes this meal as the mechanism by which we're constantly renewing that covenant. He gives us the gifts of salvation and the Holy Spirit. We exchange the gifts of our lives to him, and that's what covenant making is. And that just kind of sticks in my mind for how they worked in their culture. So the love, I want you to think of it this way. There are two covenant rituals that Jesus gave to us. I know as charismatic evangelicals, we're a little bit allergic to the word rituals, but there's just no way to get around it. They are rituals. The problem we have with rituals is not their ritualness, but when they become empty of meaning. Uh, a wedding ceremony is a very high engaged ritual, but because it's suffused with meaning, we don't say, why do you have to cheapen the beauty of their relationship by marriage? I mean, some people are like that, but those people are just wrong, you know? Um, no, you are actually taking something beautiful and giving it its only environment where it can properly thrive and become what it was meant to be. So he gave us two rituals, two covenant ceremonies. One is the way we get in, baptism. Water baptism is the mark symbolizing how we get into this covenant, and it's a one-time only thing. But he gave a second covenant ritual. Baptism was a once and for all thing. Communion was a sacred ceremony that the early churches will see practiced every week at the center of their worship. Because every time they got together, they wanted to think of their meeting as an opportunity to 
renew covenant, not as an empty ritual, but as a ritual suffused with meaning and the power of the Spirit, so that we would never worship and get together in fellowship without renewing covenant in a sacred ritualistic sort of way. And now I want you to see the difference between these two types of uses of table. The one is is Jesus dining with sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, and even the worst sinners, hypocritical, legalistic Pharisees. And that's how he would say it, isn't it? And he's open to all. Communion, though, in a certain way, and I'll have to qualify this, can't really be for everyone because it can only be a renewal of the covenant for people who have committed their lives to Christ. And so thus the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal where we meditate on the cross of Christ. In meditating on Jesus' death, this allows us to offer ourselves afresh, just as he did for us, we do for him. And we remember that we're not only saved by what he did for us, but we're sustained in our salvation constantly by him. Just like you need to be sustained by the food, we're remembering it's not only that he died for us, he sustains us. Now, what's the priority? It can start to sound like the table of covenant is this exclusive thing, and it shuns the world, and only us holy people can participate in the table of the Lord, the table of covenant. Whereas the table of radical hospitality is, a, is, is about love and acceptance. Well, it's true that the table of covenant requires redemption, yet everyone is invited to it. It isn't exclusive in that sense. Everyone can come and say, I want to enter into this sacred covenant and partake of the life of Christ. And let me just say, I think we have to have priorities straight. We have to prioritize the table of covenant over the table of radical hospitality. I really believe that. Because it's out of the first table that the second kind of table has any meaning or power. If we're not renewing our covenant with Christ and with each other, then we're going to be going and practicing radical hospitality in actually a very shallow and ineffective way. If there's no vibrant, alive, filled with the Holy Spirit, covenantally committed community that's renewing its covenant frequently to bring those into who we attract through radical hospitality, then then what's the point? There is a principle of first and second things. If you ever put thing two before thing one, you will lose both thing one and thing two. But if you keep thing one, thing one, and thing two, thing two, you get thing one and two, two. (laughs) You see what I mean? Um, Some people say it like this. I've heard people say, "Um, I I don't think the church should focus so much on worship and on, on, because we're going to be doing that forever in heaven, right? But this is the only time where we can go evangelize the lost. So we need to prioritize evangelization over the worship of God. And, I, and to me, that sounds a little bit like this. And there are people who function like this. The only time we have the kids in our house is for 18 years, 20 years maybe. Actually, maybe more like 30 nowadays. <laughs> Therefore, we need to prioritize our kids over our marriage because, this is the, because now is the urgent time. That's the same thing as those people that say prioritize evangelism over worship. What will happen? You will lose your marriage and your kids. 
But if you keep thing one, thing one, and keep thing two, thing two, you get thing one and thing two, two. Because the life of thing two flows out of the life of thing one. And so we need to practice radical. Thank you. Thank you. We, we, need, we need to practice radical hospitality, but it needs to be flushed out in the laboratory of the local church in the table of covenant commitment. We need to practice radical hospitality, but it needs to be born out of the vibrant life of the church. So I want to talk for a little bit about the table of the Lord in the New Testament. And this, this verse, this chapter I want to go to is where Jesus institutes it. And I want to go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And here, I want to bring up something very interesting that John highlights. Because this will help us to see how the table of the Lord is a special meal for the redeemed disciples. But it's not based on anything because we're so good and it's, and it's only us who could ever enjoy it because we're so awesome. And so it says that Jesus, uh, I'll begin in verse 3 of chapter 13 of John. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, girded himself. That is, he took on, anyone in this culture would understand, the role of a slave. It was the slaves and servants of the house that as soon as you came in to a meal would take off your shoes and start washing your feet. You wouldn't think anything of it. It would be like someone taking your coat as you came in. You might not even recognize them. The, 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 the people who have invited you over, they're saying, hi, how are you doing? And someone's maybe taking your coat and you're like, oh, thank you. And they're putting it in the closet. And in the same way, you wouldn't even think of twice about it. You walk into a house. Why? Because we don't sit down at tables like the paintings from the Renaissance of the Last Supper, um, although tables are wonderful things. They had tables. They actually kind of lounged around them and still do, uh, uh, at least everywhere in the Middle East I've been to. Um, well, it's, it's a mix, but you have the, the traditional way of doing it mixed with kind of more Western ways. But they lean on their left side, and they take communally from the dish in their hands on the right side, and, you're, and you're, your feet are up rubbing against your fellow person you're dining with, your stanky old feet from the dirty sandals you walk around in. So you're not going to have fellowship with someone with dirty feet. So you always wash, you have your feet washed when you come in. And Jesus, look at what it says. I want to point something out. He got up from the supper. All those disciples sat down and no one thought about washing the other's feet. And they're like ready to eat. And they haven't started eating yet. Because what Jesus does in passing the morsel to Judas, Judas if you understand what will probably be the Jewish liturgy of this Passover meal, that probably kicked off the meal later on. So they haven't started yet. Everyone's just being like, all right, let's eat. And then all of a sudden, where's Jesus? He's stripped down naked. He has a towel around his waist, and he's washing their feet. The role of a slave. He was saying, I don't eat with dirty people. I eat at the meal of radical hospitality with dirty people, but not at this table. This is the table of sacred covenant. And I don't eat with dirty people. 
Thank God our God isn't a God who says, therefore, forget you. You're not good enough. But our God stoops down and becomes a slave and says, I don't eat with dirty people and I won't bend that, but I will die for you to cleanse you so that you can come and eat. And so he poured water into the basin and began washing the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. AKA, this really isn't about washing feet. This is a symbol of what I'm about to do in a few hours on the cross. That will be your real washing. Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash your feet, you have no fellowship with me. If you don't let me cleanse you by your cross work, you can't have fellowship with me. There's a prayer from a man who I guess we could consider a church father. He had some strange views. His name was Origen. This cuts me when I read it. He said, oh, Jesus, my feet are dirty. Come even as a slave to me. That's hard to pray. Pour water into your bowl. Come wash my feet. In asking such a thing, I know I am overbold, but I dread what was threatened when you said to me, if I do not wash your feet, I have no fellowship with you. Wash my feet then, because I long for your companionship. It starts with the recognition, as Tamar was saying, remembering that this meal isn't a privilege because I'm so good. Remembering that I was so bad that God himself literally had to become a naked slave to cleanse me. And unless I let him serve me like that, I have no place here. Thank God he doesn't compromise the beauty of holy covenant. But he doesn't dismiss us because we can't earn it on our own, but he earns it for us. You see how the table of radical hospitality and the table of covenant community begin to overlap in some ways here. As you read the, the stories of the early church, as the, as the church began to practice this meal, you can go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, beginning actually in probably verse 40-ish. And this is the first time people respond to this, that same Peter's message, a passage we're, we're, we're well aware of. And... They say, as he's preaching, how do we be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And so they did. And then it describes the community life of everyone who repented and was baptized and received the Holy Spirit. In other words, the church. And it says they were continually, verse 42, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, notice that Luke talks about those meals more than the others. And Luke is also the one, I don't know if you know this, but Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts. Luke doesn't use the term breaking of bread in those passages that describe the table of radical hospitality. He uses different sorts of words. There's a unique vocabulary, in a general sense anyway, that he uses to talk about the sacred covenant table. And that's usually breaking of bread because of how Jesus did it, you know, breaking the bread, symbolizing his body broken for us. 
And so most scholars agree that that's what's being talked about here. They're devoting themselves to that meal, the table of covenant fellowship. And, and look at it here, verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So notice that everything they're doing is around the table. They're praising God. They're devoting themselves to the teaching and the fellowship, but it's around the table. And it's not just a meal, it's breaking a bread. It's a meal whose centerpiece is these, the sacred covenant ritual. But I want, you to, I want to point out this phrase. They're taking their meals together. Mm, if you love grammar, you'll love this part. If you don't, just tune out. That's the only main verb in this sentence in Greek, the finite verb, taking their meals together. What follows are participial phrases that qualify that, so that it's taking their meal together is what they're doing, and then having favor toward all, and praising God and having favor toward all the people is what they're doing as they take their meals. So taking meals is what they're doing in that clause, but, there, but two qualifications for how they took their meals, praising God. And then I'm going to correct the translations because I am a Greek expert. I've taken three semesters of it in seminary. so that. <laughs> but no, there, there's plenty of the best scholars actually would agree with this. And the translations just haven't caught up yet. I imagine they will. That is, even after two years of Greek, you read that phrase and it jumps out at you. Favor with all the people. That's not the word. He doesn't use the with there isn't the typical with. It's the word pros, which means favor, especially when it's personal, favor towards someone. In fact, it always means that in, in the literature that influences the New Testament. You, it's actually a dangerous doctrine to say that the church's job, if it's a New Testament church, is one that always has favor with all the people. You will build a very unbiblical-looking church if you say we need to make sure that culture likes us because we're supposed to have favor, favor with all the people. No, no, it's actually as they're in their meals, they're praising God, and they have a favorable, a favorable disposition toward all the people. So that they're eating in the temple courts from house to house, there are non-believers around. And even though, in a real sense, only those in covenant commitment can actually really partake in any significant way of, of the table of covenant, the church isn't snobbish toward them. It has a favorable disposition toward them. And it's a part of the process of learning and discovering Jesus to start to hang around these Christians. Another thing I want to point out about the table of the Lord is that they did it every week. They did it every Sunday. Um, the Bible doesn't say that we must do that, but it does portray that that is how they did do it. I'm always a proponent of that, although I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. What's clear is we have to do it regularly. But everyone in the early church for hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards, they only ever knew weekly communion. And I want you to go to Acts 20, because it's a very instructive verse there, Acts 20, where Paul's visiting some of the churches he had planted, and Acts 20, verse 7 and everyone's all excited that Papa Paul's in town, great Apostle Paul. And 
And he says, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when they gathered together, look at this, to break bread. Question, why did they gather together on Sunday? To break bread. That's why they're gathering. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Don't get mad at me if I'm going a little bit over. Paul literally talked until someone died. This is that story where the boy Eutychus was so bored at Paul's lecturing that he fell out of the window and died. And Paul was like, ah. Sometimes there's babies crying. Sometimes there's people dying. But the, the apostle goes down, all right, come back to life, Eutychus. Come on, you're ruining my message. I'm out of time here. And then Eutychus comes back to life, all sheepish and stuff. It's probably not that he's bored. It's, it's probably that the room was all stuffy and all the lamps that it talks about being there were sucking the oxygen out of the room and all that stuff. And then Paul like, keeps on talking. And then finally, he's held them hostage. Why did they come? Why do they gather on Sunday? To break bread. After talking till midnight, he's like, okay, now we can break bread, <laughs> it says at the end of the chapter. But look at that. They're, they're taking communion as a part of a meal, and it's the purpose for their gatherings. The Bible occasionally, very rarely in the New Testament, mentions singing as a form of worship. The primary way every culture worshiped their deity, including the Jews and the Christians, was eating a meal in the presence of your God. They did sing. Jesus, when he celebrated the Lord's Supper, it says, after the Lord's Supper, they rose up and they sang. We just saw in Acts 20, or Acts 2, they, around the meal, they praised God. They did preach. And the preaching took up more time than the meal. But even though the meal took less time, it was the centerpiece. This was the center of their worship life, this meal. Why? Because it's telling you at the core of the value of the church in its earliest days. Whatever else we do, our gathering is about covenant renewal and is about fellowship with God. And it's, but it's not just me and Jesus. Fellowship with God and all these other believers where we are Literally, eating with God, fellowshipping with him, and each other. Now, Paul talks about, in the book of 1 Corinthians, how in that process, we better be serious about that. He says, when you come to that, you better really examine your heart. Make sure there isn't any inauthenticity in you. And you better also examine your connections in the body of Christ. Because how could we celebrate this meal where we are... Um, where we are relating to God in community, yet have disconnections in our community and the body. Now, I was supposed to speak about the history of, of what happened with communion over the centuries, and I, I really didn't want to. I intended to. It's even here in my notes. <laughs> um, but I'm a teacher, and I tend to talk a lot. <laughs> but I think the most valuable part of history is not where the ideal of what we saw in the book of Acts evolved and was changed, but of what that ideal was as we see it in the Bible. Because no matter how it has evolved and changed over time, what we know is that this is what we're striving for. We can't, all, we can't go back and be them. We can't be first century, first century Roman people in the Mediterranean. We can't. 
Um, you can move to the Mediterranean if you like. I don't recommend it because this is a great church and you should stay here. Um, <laughs> but you wouldn't be a first century Roman. You, you can't get that back. But we still need to ask ourselves, how can we capture that? Can we, after we worship God, can we make sure that Christ crucified is central? Since that's what the meal would center us on every week. Can we make sure that it isn't just an interaction between me and God, but we see everything we do when we get together as fellowship with one another? Can we make sure that it happens as a meal? It doesn't necessarily fit our church culture anymore to literally have a meal here, but you know what we can do? We can invite our friends over, even those we haven't met yet or interacted much, and say, let's go out to eat or come over to my house. Let's extend the atmosphere of this gathering into fellowship and radical hospitality amongst believers. And then from there, let it naturally flow out of t- to radical hospitality with those apart from Christ. Yes, we can do those things. Yes, we can do those things. I, at this point, we're actually going to begin distributing the communion. And, and I, I will, I'll continue to frame things in and, and lead us through communion. I understand that you have been, during this series, um, taking communion every week. And I think that's wonderful. Um, I'm always a cheerleader for that in our church. We should do communion every week, every time. I'm an elder there, so apparently that gives me some kind of authority. And they're like, yeah, that's great, Travis. Like, well, I try, you know. I'm convinced if I ran the church, it would be wonderful. There'd be four people in it. And I have a family of five, so that's saying something. Um, but, <laughs> but everything would be like I liked it. Uh, but we're going to distribute the, the, the communion, the, uh, the uh, bread and, the, and the, you know, the juice. And I want us to really think about this as covenant renewal. Lots have happened. Lots has happened to how we view this. This thing has been weaponized as a way to consolidate power in a particular church. Communion has been a reason to divide Christians because of our disagreements on important things, but things that shouldn't divide us, per se, about communion. Communion very quickly lost that communal agape meal that came along with it. And it was seen as only some interaction that between us and God, instead of having the full orb sense of fellowship with God overflowing to fellowship with the person to your right and left and behind you and in front of you. And eventually, communion became a mechanism where you didn't have to do it at all. The priest would do it for you. All that mattered was that he was communing with God. You only needed to do it at least once a year. And it slowly over time devolved in many ways to become, it was always a ritual. Jesus intended it to be, but to become a mere ritual, a dead ritual that people didn't understand, couldn't understand because the description of it wasn't even allowed to be in their language. That's the cliff notes of the part that I feel guilty for not getting to. Um, Thank God that we're at a place in every revival, whether Catholic or Protestant, has always revived the communion meal. It's always increased it. Thank God we're in a place where we get to obey Jesus and renew our covenant with him. As you hold the cup and the bread, I would like you to close your eyes and just think with me as I sort of lead us through thought and through prayer. 
This, uh, this uh, we, have, we have come to Christ. We are his. We belong to him. But, oh, thank you. And we, many, have been baptized into him. We've, we've participated in that kind of marriage ceremony, the once for all thing. This is a renewal of that covenant, God. So we do like Papa Paul taught us to do. We don't do this lightly. We examine our hearts to make sure that there's nothing we're holding back so that we're not treating with disdain this beautiful thing you did for us, emblemized by this ritual here, as we remember what it represents, that your, your body was broken, that you, your blood was poured out, that we could have life. We are dirty and don't deserve none of us. Christian, non-Christian, seeking, non-seeking. If anyone here is a prophet or an apostle and has a literal halo around your head, none of us have the right to eat this. We are all dirty, and we need you, Jesus, to come and wash our feet as a slave because we can have no fellowship unless we allow you to cleanse us. Thank God that our God does not compromise on the beauty of holiness so that the covenant we get to have with him is actually enjoying that holiness, but has condescended to us and stripped himself down and took on our form and died for us and experienced the agony of separation from God for us, experienced the wrath of God that we deserved, poured out upon him, willingly taking it. And now you say, come and eat. Come and eat. All are invited. Some have said, we don't want to come to the banquet. And he went into the highways and the byways and the dark places and the dirty places. And he invited all of us. And he said, come, come and eat, come and eat. And even at the end of this great book, the spirit and the bride say, come and eat. Thank you, Jesus, that it's all possible because of you. Let this not just be an interaction with us and you, let it also be seen as a meal with each other. Even if the meal part of it is something that we, and I think we rightly should, take it upon ourselves to say, it's our job to make sure this transfers into a meal after this. And in other words, whether it's an actual meal, actual real community with brothers and sisters, help us to remember this is not just renewing covenant with you, it's renewing covenant with your people. And if you're someone who's on a journey toward Christ, and even as you listen, your heart is being stirred with faith. Some teachers in the church have taught that if you approach this meal, not mockingly, but with faith, this this could be a way in the context of watching the believers gather together for communion, that your faith can be stirred and that you can begin to realize, I have a place at the table too. Because you do. There's nothing you must do. Nothing you can do. He's done it all. You just receive it by faith that says, I let go of everything I am. Just let go of everything you are. That's easy. Well, someone has said, it's the easiest thing in the world and it's the hardest thing in the world. 
None of your merit gets added to it. Nothing you do can make God impressed with you. But it does require saying, I surrender to you. And I realize I only have your death on my behalf to trust. I have none of my own goodness to trust. If you're at that place, a moment like this could be a moment where you realize, I want to enter into that covenant too. And if you're at that place, come and talk to some of the pastors or friends that you know here. But why don't you hold the bread in your hand? Christ took this and broke it and gave it after he blessed it and said, this is my body. I think he means this represents my body. But it isn't just representation. He promised to be here when we gather together in honor of him. He's here with us. We're eating with him. And it's broken for you. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance, which is actually a very worshipful word, actually, remembrance of me. Why don't, you, why don't we partake of the bread together? And he took the cup which he blessed on that night, and he called it the cup of the new covenant. All that redemptive work that he did in Israel long ago to get them out of Egypt, starting it by a meal, he brought it to its full intention on that night when he went to the cross as the Lamb of God to die for our sins and to cleanse us. And it was appropriate that he started it with a meal. And he took that cup of that meal and he blessed it And he sort of renewed it and remade it and reshaped it after his likeness and says, now when you do this, this is remembering that I died for you. My blood was poured out for you, which made, which brought you into covenant. So we do this now, Lord, we drink this cup to renew our covenant with you and with each other. Why don't you drink the blood together, drink the the cup together? And let's just, why don't you, why don't you stand, in fact? Why don't you just hold your hands open? Not as if you're about to receive something, but almost recognizing I've already received it. You're holding it. The gift, all sorts of gifts he gives us, but the most precious, which we're just celebrating, the gift of life. And not just life, the gift of being invited into fellowship with God himself finding ourselves with brothers and sisters who have also found themselves in fellowship with God himself. What a precious thing. So precious, your blood purchased it. Thank you, God. Help us to walk it out in holiness, in fellowship, in radical hospitality, in worship. We worship you, God.